Subscription services are on the rise. Studies indicate that more than half of online shoppers belong to at least one retail service. But with companies like Rent the Runway halting services due to supply chain issues, this model's future remains unclear. Vintage theme retailer ModCloth was just sold by Walmart after a perplexing two-year relationship, a move that may bring ModCloth back into good graces with its former loyalists. And, this just in, retail jobs are on the decline, but only in these specific categories. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, October 14th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Our guests today include Diane Ellis and Dean Hanspiker. Diane is a retail executive with 35 years experience. She's currently CEO of DME Advisory Group and previously held roles such as brand president for Chico's, CEO of The Limited, and CEO of Brooks Brothers. Dean is the Vice President of Design for Product and Store Development at Custom Menswear Retailer Indochino. He's responsible for the overall vision, look, and feel of Indochino's product and retail business. Diane, Dean, thank you both for joining the show today. Thanks. Our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Great to have you. There's a new report out about subscription services. From razors in bulk to bones for your dog, more than half of online shoppers say they're members of at least one monthly subscription service. And a new survey was just released from Clutch, that's the ratings platform, and it revealed that Dollar Shave Club is the leading subscription box platform, followed by Ipsy, Blue Apron, and BarkBox. It also reported that millennials are the most likely demographic to be members of retail subscriptions. That said, it also indicated that more than a third of all retail subscribers cancel in less than three months. So over a third cancel in less than three months, and that jumps to over 50% canceling within six months of signing up. So those numbers are pretty shocking. Diane, would you agree that this widespread retention problem is because the novelty wears off or what's going on? This is a huge market. Well, I think, you know, it depends on what kind of subscription service you're talking about with regard to the Dollar Shave Clubs and the Quips and the Blue Aprons and all of that. It can be where the novelty wears off, but I think the value equation has to be strong where you're getting a premium, either a premium product for a high value price and significant convenience, or you're getting something that provides a sense of discovery or newness, or takes you somewhere where you on your own wouldn't go. So the value equation is really driven by either expertise in the category that provides, whether it's wardrobing services or things like that, that allow it to be you know, a high value proposition. So it depends whether the novelty wears off on what kind of service it is. And you know, again, you're seeing the strength of those services in millennials because of a lot of that relating to the rental economy and the fact that a lot of these subscription services are really driven by rental models where Again, they're not making the commitment to own the product. So it does create some challenges with that high fallout rate to really either make it so seamless and so high value and you're delivering a really significant premium product for a value price or you're getting to learn the consumer and really provide value by bringing other related products that really fit that consumer's lifestyle. So really understanding them and learning more about them through the process and continuing to add value in that manner. But it is a challenge to maintain that kind of hook to keep the consumer interested 
and committed uh, to something that's a monthly service. Absolutely. And Dean, would you agree with Diane that it's it's just about the challenge of keeping the hook and the high value combined with convenience, or are there other factors that you're seeing at play? I agree with Diane in that you know to keep up either the convenience factor that it's going to make my life easier, so I'm going to mm-hmm. continue to subscribe, or it's going to somehow surprise, delight, offer that tremendous value that Diane spoke to. But the churn is alarming. The cost of acquisition to get these subscriptions kicked off and then the turnover in the loss of at that three months from the study, six months is huge. And I have to look to us as consumers as you look through your visa bill today and we're at peak subscription between movies, music, news, games even, everything, uh, data to support. That's just the media consumption. So before the boxes arrive, there's quite a few charges on your visa. Before you leave the house to go shopping or go online to go shopping, there's a lot of things. So I have to think there's a realization with a lot of, especially this target demographic, that seeing this on their credit card monthly and oftentimes accruing interest, oh, well, what's a need to have versus a nice to have some months in in that review? We're all looking to reduce some expenses in some areas and increase our spend on experience today. And oftentimes are frills to the lifestyle as opposed to necessities. I would add to that just, uh, I read a report, it was from 2018, but it said the average, and this is not globally speaking, but the average American pays just under 250 a month for subscription services. And obviously, if that report included like Amazon, that takes up about half, right, for Prime. But is the acquisition cost that you spoke to, Dean, how high would you estimate? Because if you're having drop-off within six months, I don't see how some of these companies are profitable. And I know personally, I receive so many subscription meal service mailers each month, and I just toss them in the trash. Absolutely. The mailers, the online retargeting, that the expensive way to market today, the trash that's coming through to your mailbox is actually less expensive in some cases. Right. Uh, the cost of acquisition it could easily be from 50 into the hundreds of dollars, depending on the category that you're looking at. There's no question that it's expensive. And mm-hmm. if you can't keep them at $30 a month for a year plus, you're definitely not getting a return on that investment. Yeah. And I think, you know, it also is looking at whether that balance between the retention that you're getting in that model versus what you're paying for costs for brick and mortar and the type of retention that you're getting there as well. So I think, you know, in today's environment, consumers are not loyal in general. There's less loyalty and more switching or opting to other alternatives that it's a challenge across the board. I think it's a question of whether when you look at the models, which of them uh, for your particular brand makes sense given the fact that brick and mortar model is not necessarily as productive and has high acquisition costs as well. I think that's an interesting point. And I would ask you, what do you think about the future of these services? Because it seems like the market might be getting a bit saturated, but at the same time, we heard Rent the Runway just a few weeks back announced to customers that they weren't accepting new subscribers because of some issues they were running into, I think, with scaling. So are we just going to see some top players come out of this and consolidation? Or Well, I think Rent the Runway looked like it was a particularly short-term issue for them with a shift in some of their supply chain systems that caused that blip and that they weren't taking new customers on the short term until they resolved some of the glitches with their new supply chain system. So I don't know that it's necessarily a scaling issue more than a 
issue with them with regard to upgrading some of their systems. But that being said, I do think as in anything, you know, the wave of maturity and oversaturation in retail, that cycle is happening much, much faster. And so they've uh, kind of oversaturated, you know, the market in a lot of cases. And now there will be fallout amongst key players. And those that really provide that value proposition, that's enough to forego the hesitancy when they look at their monthly credit card, as Dean said, that says, look, this is really worth it. And I am getting value for that monthly investment. Those will be the ones that will continue to forge forward. But the ones where that value proposition just isn't enough or the process isn't seamless enough will fall by the wayside. It is interesting when you bring up Rent the Runway, and certainly it, it was a logistics challenge, the, their latest hiccup. But the evolution of their business to bricks and mortar even is telling. The cost of acquisition piece plays into these decisions. And as they look to some of these stores to these physical spaces to connect with their client at a deeper level, to acquire new customers who might be hesitant at the outset to shop online and risk the fit, the quality, the detail that is more obvious or more uh, readily visible in store. So some changes there. These subscription services, in my opinion, that make your life easier are going to continue to flourish. The others are going to have to evolve. Definitely. And, you know, obviously with Amazon does a great job at bundling some of those. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. So next in the news, we're going to jump into ModCloth, which is actually just a way of talking about Walmart because Walmart has sold the woman's fashion brand after two years of attempting to dive into that market. And it's laying off dozens of Bonobos employees. So Walmart initially purchased ModCloth, the vintage-inspired apparel and accessories brand, for a reported $50 million. That was back in 2017, followed by its purchase of menswear brand Bonobos for the $300 million. The move was intended to help Walmart build its e-commerce assortment through proprietary brands, but in the case of ModCloth, was instead abandoned by many of the indie brand's loyalists. Dean, what's your take on Walmart's decision to offload ModCloth? Was Walmart maybe too off-brand for ModCloth's millennial customer base, or are there other variables you think impacting this decision? Yes, and and yes. Uh, first, I just want to say that I'm a big fan of both of these brands and what I would say represent next-generation retailers with their approach to inventory and showrooms and just a, the potential to be a more efficient model all the way through and still deliver to clients you know, what it is they're looking for at home or in store. The acquisition had a few challenges at the outset. I went directly to the Bonobos Instagram page to the day of the acquisition was announced and the amount of hate from their existing clients that was being posted. Mm -hmm. I'm sure similar to ModCloth, you know, I'll never shop with you again. Just the difference in values between those that saw themselves as part of the Bonobos family that perhaps didn't see themselves ever shopping at a Walmart or had never shopped at a Walmart. There was a disconnect, disconnect of cultures. That said, I certainly appreciated that Walmart could help both brands, all of the brands that they've invested in, scale to the next level and hopefully, you know, maintain that independence and that culture and those values to an even wider audience. So so something laudable. But the bigger challenge really is that you're looking at a direct-to-consumer online brand that's, you know, making this transition, brands, plural, that are making these transitions and burning a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. And this online model that you see everywhere today, 
most all of them are burning a lot of cash. They're raising money and spending it as fast as they can, and in some cases spending it well, and in others spending it to be seen to be growing and making mistakes and losing money as a result. And I can't speak to exactly where Modcloth and Bonobos is and, and how are they, they're spending their money, but their expansion has been expensive. You know, Bonobos is going to the top malls. They're doing great build-outs. They're spending a lot of cash. They're not testing their way into new markets. They're planting a flag. And that continues to burn. And when you contrast that to a Walmart who is, widely publicly traded and consistently profitable and has invested in new markets and pulled out in a fairly short window internationally because the return wasn't there. This is not surprising that it's come to pass that faith is not as great as it was, you know, a couple of years ago when they went down this road. I think, you know, for Walmart, the question was, what was the WIFM for them? And I think they thought perhaps it was a way for them to change the positioning a little bit of their perception as a brand to be a little bit more contemporary and to really absorb the skill sets of people like Bonobos and Maud Cloth and, you know, kind of find some kind of synergy with regard to the perception of the Walmart brand. And in that regard, it really didn't, you know, the cultures to Dean's point were way too different. And the models were very different in, re- in regard to, you know, Walmart is all about throughput and low cost and high efficiency. And you're looking at trying to latch onto that, something that's really about uniqueness and high quality. And, and along with that very high cost, I think you'll see, you know, again, Walmart's put Jet Black up, on the sale block um, because again, there sounded like an interesting concept and idea to be able to deliver same day and, you know, high touch and all of that. It's about $15,000 per year per customer in cost to do that. So it doesn't again, fit the kind of returns and ROIs that a high efficiency model like Walmart is looking for. So I think Walmart's saying, you know, where they're really putting their focus more on, those categories where they have an opportunity to leverage omni-channel, whether that's grocery or other categories where they're putting more of their e-commerce and online investment in those categories versus kind of these proprietary independent brands. So I think it was a learning and an experiment for them, but doesn't seem to be the direction that they're going going forward. Definitely does not. And for Walmart, you know, it's it seems like it's a bit of a drop in the bucket And maybe it was just too bold of a company for them to take over. I noticed it was one of the first apparel companies that pledged no Photoshop in its early days in 2002 and beyond. So yeah, the value's in the line. And I think Walmart's move, as you said, into grocery and some of these other categories is probably more top of mind, more valuable right now. Well, I think that's always the challenge with any M&A that sometimes why we admire companies to bring them in is to change our culture and change our positioning. But Mm -hmm if the cultures are too different and there's not synergy with the end consumer, sometimes again, the value proposition of that M&A doesn't uh, pan out. Despite a robust economy, a September 2019 report shows retail jobs in the U.S. are on the decline. Despite an additional 136,000 jobs, uh, the unemployment rate fell another 0.2% last month. And within that, the retail industry shed another 11,400 jobs that were mainly in apparel and accessories. So not a huge slip, but Diane, 
Can you speak on the industry changes contributing to some of these job losses within apparel? And do you think we'll recover these numbers and they'll resurface maybe in other categories? Well, I think, you know, again, for apparel and accessories, it is overall a declining spend. And so with the combination of store closures, as well as the challenge that retailers are having to get uh, more efficient as sales decline, as comps continue to be a challenge in the sector, they're cutting payroll and cutting um, non-core essential positions within their corporate structure. So you will see, again, more tightening of the belt and more, I would say, lean models within apparel and accessories. Now, will other categories pick that up? Like we have emerging categories within the retail sector that are now opening locations and stores, things like cannabis and other categories that are growing. So that balance will probably shift somewhat. I don't know that it will pick up enough to absorb all of those open roles, but you're looking at that shifting probably more into the service sector. So whether you're talking about restaurants or other service businesses, everywhere you go, there's help wanted signs up everywhere looking for people and looking for qualified people. Um, But I think it'll shift again, more out of goods into services overall and out of apparel and accessories into new emerging categories. Of course. And like you said earlier with the rental economy and and the services economy, this makes a lot of sense and could definitely be where the shift is happening. Do you agree with that, Dean? Certainly. I agree on the shift part. I I will say though, despite retail having shed 11,400 jobs. As a retailer who's growing and expanding, we're having a great deal of time, great difficulty in uh, recruiting the right people in our mm. spaces nationwide, really. It's not limited to one market or one coast. And certainly challenged to find the right fit. I agree the shift and the jobs will shift to emerging or new higher growth categories. And looking to the malls and where the space is being repurposed from apparel and other categories that are shrinking to food, to entertainment, to experience, those categories will start to kick up some of these jobs that are being lost in apparel categories today. It's a shift and it'll happen naturally. Certainly the unemployment rate is low enough in the U.S. to say that everyone that wants to find a job can find one in one category or another. Yeah, I do agree with Dean. It is a challenge to find qualified staff and associates to bring in. We saw, you know, in my recent past, you know, the shift where you would lose, you know, qualified associates to other competitors in your category that were paying more or, you know, had a better bonus program or something like that. But in the last few years, you've seen that shift out of retail entirely where those former associates and staff members are actually moving into other non-retail jobs like food or banking or other categories where they're feeling more stability perhaps and less demand for weekend hours and evening hours and things of that nature. So as the unemployment rate goes down, people have an opportunity to be more picky perhaps on the benefits and work-life balance that they're looking for. And so retail becomes sometimes a bit of a challenge across the board, particularly in a high employment economy. Uh, Interesting. So you're saying maybe the perception of increased stability in other areas uh, would maybe deter someone from 
continuing with retail or looking for a job based in retail. But then Dean, I also wanted to ask you, are the requirements changing? I know we've talked a lot about how important frontline employees are and that there's sort of a shift in the caliber of people needed for the roles and things like that. Definitely in our category and, and something that Diane said that regards to people leaving retail for other industries completely, uh, perhaps even outside of service. And I see that more and more where before when someone resigned with us in my retail career, it was to go across the hall for 50 cents more or promotion or what have you within the center. Today, it is oftentimes out of retail and into mm-hmm. perhaps a nine to five job, this type of role. The needs for us are somewhat different. And this is why we look not only to other apparel retailers to recruit from, but other retail categories that have a higher touch, higher product knowledge, higher customer service demand. Because we we do major measure suits and we're working with clients one-on-one, someone who's working in a center that's predominantly, or an apparel retailer that's predominantly hanging clothes, refolding sweaters, saying next to the person in line at the gap, is not transferable skills for us. Certainly not to say that someone couldn't flourish in a role with us, but it's a different skill set. And finding people that are customer-centric is harder, but finding roles that really demand that one-on-one with customers is harder in retail today than it used to be. Too many retailers are just staffing the cash and making sure there's not too much on the floor anymore. It's not a terribly engaging job. (laughs) Right. And Dean, I agree with you 100%. You know, that relationship-oriented associate that has the ability to build long-term relationships and cultivates a client base is really critical and important. And we found actually, now this is still several years ago at Brooks Brothers, you know, some of our best associates came out of sectors like telecom. They had come out of a sales environment and had built relationships with people that were so strong that those relationships transferred regardless of what category or what product that individual was actually selling, it was more about the relationship that they had built and that relationship of trust. And so the retail environment, those relationships oftentimes supersede category or retailer or anything. And and having the ability to recruit people like that is critical where they're able to build those longstanding relationships that are high touch and very trust oriented. Dean, Diane, it was great having you on the rundown today and I hope to have you in the future. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.